Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I also hope that it challenges you. And I want you to know that we are in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment from Jesus to love God and to love people. And so I hope more than anything that this encourages you to love God and to love the people around you in a more holistic way. I also hope that you have some people around you to talk through some of these things with. And if you don't, we would love to see you at one of our Sunday gatherings or in one of our Restore groups. You can get all that information on our website at RestoreAustin.org. I hope you enjoy the message. Thanks. About uh, one of my very worst days. So when I was 18, um, I, I just turned 18. So this was Christmas break of my senior year in high school. I turned 18 on December 1st, and uh, that's my birthday coming up, you know, a few months, just FYI, yep. Um, but I turned 18, and I had some friends, uh, two friends actually, them and their families were going to go on a cruise um, over Christmas break. And they invited me, not my family, which was A+, plus, to go along with them. So it was just me and my two friends and their families, and we were going on a cruise to Mexico. And so I was super excited. I'd never really done anything like that. And um, I don't know if you know this. If you've been on cruises, you probably know. But there are different laws in international waters. I don't know if you knew that, right? So uh, stuff that is normally 21 goes down to 18. Um, and uh, for an 18-year-old that had just turned 18, that was a very positive development for me. So we get on this cruise ship. And the big thing that I was looking forward to was the casino. I mean, like, really looking forward to it because me and my friends, in fact, two of these friends that were on this cruise, had this home poker game that was a standing game at my friend's house. Like, every Friday and Saturday night, we played for, like, years and years and years, mostly Texas Hold'em. This was in, like, the height of the World Series of Poker being on ESPN. If you remember all that, we were all super into it. And we all thought we were really good. And so this was like, can we get to test our metal, you know, kind of against, like, people on this cruise and this casino or whatever. So anyway, we, we load up on the cruise. And I remember there's all, like, if you've ever been on a cruise, there's like the, the life jacket, you know, time. They're like explaining what happens if the whole thing goes overboard. And, you know, I'm just like, I don't care. Just announce that we're in international waters and the casino is open. Like, that's all that I want to know. So I was just waiting for that announcement. So finally, they come over the PA. They're like, hey, we've gone into international waters. The casino is now open, whatever. So I like beeline toward the casino. We sit down at the Texas Hold'em tables. And for the next three days, basically all day and all night, we played Texas Hold'em. Now, I did pretty well, just being honest with you. Um, now, my competition was mostly like drunk tourists, so it was not that hard. Um, but after like three days, I was up um, $700, $700 after three days. For an 18-year-old, that was a huge deal, like a huge deal. It's going really well, and it's like night three. Now, the table for Texas Hold'em was a little bit different than the overall casino. So the table for Texas Hold'em and kind of the other poker tables, they closed at 3 a.m. Now, the casino was open 24-7. So one night, it was about 2.50 a.m., and I had this really bad beat. Raise your hand if you know what a bad beat is. No, well, like two of you. Okay, great. I don't know how to explain that. So basically what happened is I had better cards initially than the other person, but, you know, we turned them over and all the other cards were dealt and I ended up losing. Like the percentages were way in my favor at first, but then I ended up losing. And so there's this poker term that they have. It's called you go on tilt. And it's from um, those old, what are those machines called? 
Pinball machines, yeah, pinball machines, right? So if you shake a pinball machine, it, it says tilt and everything stops, right? And you can't do anything. You can't make any good decision. And it's the same thing with poker. You have a bad beat and you go on tilt personally and it's like you can't make a good decision to save your life. And so I'd kind of gone on tilt and I was really upset about this bad beat that I'd had and I played like two more hands and the table closed. And so my friends that I was with, they knew, they were like, Zach, that was, this is a bad deal. Let's just go to bed. We'll wake up in the morning. We'll hit the hold'em table in the morning. It'll be fine. I was like, no, I'm going to the casino because it's open 24-7. They were like, please don't do that, Zach. Please don't do that. And I was like, no, you guys go to bed. Stop talking to me. I'm going to the casino. I sit down at the blackjack table, and I'm like, it, and it's, it's dead in the casino, right? It's like literally just me and the blackjack dealer. No one else is around. And I'm like, start dealing me cards, man. Like, I'm upset. I'm going to win this money back. Like three hours go by, and I lose the 700 that I was up. And then I lose another 500 that I'd brought as cash for the casino. So that was not great. But I'm still pretty much on tilt. And so I'm like, I, I can win this back. And you know the easiest way to win money back is to bet a lot of money, right? Because <laughs> if you bet a lot and you win, then you win it all back really fast. So I take my dad's credit card, which was for emergencies only. And, but this was an emergency, right? Like this was a huge emergency. So I go to the ATM in the casino. It's very conveniently located. If you've ever been to a casino, ATMs are like everywhere in the casino. So I go in there, I, I swipe it, I get $1,000 out. I go back, I sit down at the table, I put 500 down, I say, let's deal, deal a hand. That's the max for this table. And he was like, please don't do this, sir. <laughs> like, please go to bed. And I was like, deal the cards. And he was like, all right. So deals the cards, I lose, second $500, put it out. I'm like, look, I just win this one, I'm back to 1,000. I'll do two more, I'll, I'll be back to 2,000, I'll go to bed, it'll be fine. Lose again. Take the credit card out again. Go back to the ATM, swipe it, and I get the beep, 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 your card has been declined. And you, apparently my dad had set up, in his incredible wisdom, a cap on what I could pull out on this credit card during this trip, and it was $1,000, and I'd hit it. And I remember sitting there, and I'm looking at the little error message on the ATM, and everything hits me about what had just happened. Because I had not really been in my right mind for the last few hours, right? Like I'd been on tilt, and I had been making terrible decisions. But that error message told me, like, it's over, and you got to deal with this now. So I was down not just the 700 that I won, but an additional $1,500 that I'd lost that my parents had given me. And I didn't have anywhere close to money like that as an 18-year-old. And so I am, like, in this kind of zombie stupor, and I walk back, and literally the blackjack dealer comes and gives me a hug. <laughs> He's like, it's okay, it's gonna be okay. He walks me back to uh, my room, my friends were asleep. I sit down in the hallway outside the door of my room and I just start crying. And I think, my life's over. Like my parents are never gonna let me do anything again. I'm gonna owe them $1,500 for the rest of my life. I'm never gonna be able to work and pay that back. It's never gonna happen. Amy and I, my now wife, are dating at the time. Um, we hadn't been dating all that long and uh, I'm thinking, she's going to leave, right? She's going to think I'm this ridiculous, irresponsible, terrible decision maker. How can I be like the man that she needs and the provider that she needs when I just blow money on a cruise casino? And I thought my life, that I'm, like I knew it at that point, was, was over. It was a horrible, horrible day. One of my very worst days. Now, I'm sure that as I was talking about one of my worst days, 
you were thinking about some of your worst days. Because we all have days like these. Mama said there would be days like these, you know what I mean? Maybe for you, your worst day was when you cheated. Maybe it was on a test in school, maybe it was on your taxes, maybe it was on a business deal, or maybe it was on a significant other. However it happened, you knowingly took advantage of someone because you wanted something. You saw it, you saw the opportunity, you didn't really care who got hurt and you went after it. Or maybe for you it was a day that you stole something. Could have been from a store when you were a kid, it could have been from someone's home, or it could have just been stealing credit for someone else's work, passing it off as your own. Whatever it was, you took something that didn't belong to you and you acted like it did. Maybe for you, your worst day was when you told a really big lie. Doesn't matter if it was about something really big, because sometimes small ones start multiplying and they turn into one that's big, right? Whatever it was, big or small, you deceived someone so that you could be better off. Or maybe for you, your worst day was when you lashed out in anger. Maybe you yelled at someone that you loved, or maybe you hit someone. Maybe you broke something. Maybe you got so mad that you weren't even really in control any longer, and you, you gave in to your anger, you let it control you, and, and you did something you regret. Maybe it's just as simple as on your worst day, you chose something over someone. You chose something over someone. You chose to stay at work rather than go home and be with your kids, and you missed something really important. You chose to run after money and run after promotions, run after stuff, rather than love your spouse well. You chose to break off a relationship because of some petty disagreement, and now you haven't talked to that person in a really long time, and you don't even really remember why. Maybe you chose to jump back into an addiction rather than ask for help from the people around you. Maybe you turned your back on a relationship with God because you couldn't really reconcile what you were experiencing in life with who he said he was. Whatever it was, I think all of our worst days have one thing in common. They hurt someone. And whether it hurts us or someone else, our worst days are defined by pain. Emotional, physical, spiritual pain. And I don't know about, the end, I don't know about you, but at the end of my worst days, I am left with this huge, looming question. I, in fact, I remember asking it to myself as I sat outside of my room on that cruise, crying in the hallway, and it's this. Is anyone still going to love me after what I've done? Is anyone still going to love me on my worst day? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever thought that as you sat at the end of a terrible day and wondered, am I just unlovable now? Love is the main idea that we've been exploring in this teaching series we started last Sunday called He First Loved Us. And we're talking about He First Loved Us because Scripture tells us that any love we have, whether for ourselves or God or others, comes from God himself. 1 John 4 says it like this, we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. We love because he first 
loved us. God is love, and we love because he first loved us. So this series is a journey through the big story of the Bible, looking at the unwavering love God has for humanity. Last week we talked about that from before the creation of the world, before the beginning of time, the love that God had, how we were created out of it. We're going to move all the way through in this series to end with the love God had in Christ through the resurrection. But we ended last week with this shared understanding of what we mean when this verse says God is love. Here's what we said. Our God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, has always been and will always be unconditionally loving toward each other and toward humanity, not just as an action, but as God's core identity. Listen, think about it like this. Love is not just something God does. Love is who God is. Love is not just an action that God takes. Love is a characteristic of God himself. And we were created out of the overflow of God's love, and we were invited back into that love as full participants. Now, because of that, you and I and every human that has ever lived, we have been created with this intrinsic need for unconditional love. You know what I'm talking about? Nod your head if you know what I'm talking about. We have this need, this want to be unconditionally loved by someone. And most of us, most of humanity spends their lives looking for unconditional love in anything and everything around them. So why doesn't God just force his unconditional love on humanity so that we'll all have what we need? Because participation in the agape, that's what we talked about last week for love, in that perfect unconditional love, Participation in that perfect, unconditional love of God must be a choice. Because listen, love forced on someone is not love at all. Love by definition must be chosen. This is what the first few chapters of the Bible back in Genesis are all about. Adam and Eve are created out of the agape love of the Trinity and then invited back into it. They are given, like us, a choice. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that God is not in control, right? He speaks and the world is formed. He breathes and life enters humanity's lungs. He overcomes death by rising from the grave. He is all-powerful and in control, but God places some of that control into the hands of humanity. Whether you think that's a good idea or a bad idea is debatable. (laughs) But the truth is there. If you don't believe me, just take a look at the news tonight. See the brokenness that permeates our world. Does God force people to lie and steal and cheat and enslave and murder? Certainly not. He urges us, he invites us, but he does not force us. God lets us choose. And that choice is represented very clearly in the story of Adam and Eve by something called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this morning we're going to look at that story. Genesis chapter 2 is where we'll start. If you have your Bible or your phone or iPad or anything like that, turn with me. If you don't have that, the verses will also be on the screen behind me. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at this passage, this choice that Adam and Eve had around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're going to ask this question. Does God still love us on our worst day? Does God still love us on our worst day? Here we go. Genesis 2, starting in verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free 
to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in that day you eat of it, you will certainly die. So God gives Adam and Eve a choice here, and, and on, on the surface it kind of looks like a dietary choice, right? Should they eat this tree or that tree? But the choice is a lot deeper than that. See, the choice is whether to believe in God's love for them or not. Does God really know best? Does he really want what's best for them? Is his love really enough to meet their needs, or do they need to go somewhere else, somewhere he has said, don't go, to try to get those needs met? I love how Lisa Sharon Harper says it in her book called The Very Good Gospel. She says, the one distinction that makes this tree, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, stand out is that it has a command attached to it. The command was the only boundary humanity had in paradise. It was the one place in the vast garden where humanity was confronted with the question, do I love God? And so the question arises with every encounter between the humans and the tree, do I love God? Because to love God is to trust God, to choose God, and to choose God's way to peace and wholeness. To choose the tree would be to turn their backs on God, listen, in favor of the illusion of human fulfillment apart from God. This is the question Adam and Eve are each faced with. Do I love God? And do I trust that he really loves me? They have been presented with these two options. They're about to be asked to make a choice. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So the serpent here is making the case that Adam and Eve can't really trust the love of God. He claims that God is lying to them, that God's holding out on them, and what they're looking for is actually found in creation, not in the creator. That the ultimate love, the unconditional love that they have been intrinsically given as a need is best met through the creation, not through the creator. Now they must decide, do they really love God enough to trust him? Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. They chose to walk away from the love of God and to trust something else. Like Lisa Sharon Harper said, they turn their backs on God in favor of the illusion of human fulfillment apart from God. It always strikes me that even though verse 6 there is so concise, the far-reaching consequences of their choice are anything but. Adam and Eve choose not to accept or reciprocate the love of God, and everything changes. Sin and all the consequences that come with it enter God's perfect creation and begin infecting it like a disease. Guilt and shame and selfishness and death all come in and begin wreaking havoc on Adam and Eve and the world around them. Here's what it looks like, verse 7. 
The eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, that's a great part, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. You notice the blame shifting there? Adam's like, it wasn't me, it was her. She's like, it wasn't me, it was the serpent. Where before, Adam and Eve had been naked and vulnerable and without shame, now they see themselves as exposed. Not just their bodies, but their minds and their hearts. And they begin trying to to cover up, to, to shift the blame off of themselves. They start hiding from God. They start blaming each other for what happened. It's really like, it's just a heartbreaking scene. Heartbreaking scene. Sin comes in and brings guilt and shame and selfishness and death along with it. Not just for Adam and Eve, for God's perfect creation, but for all humanity and for all time. It was truly their worst day. Their worst day. So back to our question from the beginning. Does God still love us on our worst day? Will he still love Adam and Eve on their worst day? Let's keep going and see how God responds. Back to verse 13, and then we'll go from there. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, And all wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now we read this just kind of a a surface level reading and it just feels like, wow, humanity and snakes, not going to get along, right? And I can attest to that, like not a huge fan. But this is so much more than a prediction about animosity between humans and snakes. You see, in these verses, God is promising a savior that will crush the head of evil and bring freedom from sin to humanity. God is promising Jesus. That's what this is. All all biblical scholars and church fathers for thousands of years have looked back on Genesis 3, on these verses, and said that it is the first messianic prophecy. Now, those are kind of big churchy words. So messianic is Messiah, and that is kind of the Hebrew word for savior. And prophecy is just this prediction about when he will come and what it will look like. And so this is the first prediction of Jesus in God's words to the serpent. In these verses, God is promising a savior, not just for Adam and Eve, but for all humanity. In 2003, there was a nun named Grace Remington of the Sisters of the Mississippi Abbey in Iowa. And she captured this incredible moment in her painting called The Virgin Mary Consoles Eve. That's what it looks like. I've shown this before in here, and I'm sure that I'm going to show it again. It's, it's one of the most meaningful pieces of art that I've ever seen. In fact, Amy, my wife, got me a copy of it a while back, and it's framed on the mantle in our living room right now. This painting means so much to me because, because I'm Eve. Eve. 
because we are Eve. This is what we look like on our worst days. Look at her. Clutching sin in our hands like she holds that fruit. Unwilling to let go of it even though it's hurting us. Our feet entangled in brokenness, being tripped up by the evil in our world. Our heads hung down in shame because we know the pain we've caused for ourselves and for others. She's us on our worst day. But even on our worst day, God loves us so much that he is already working on our behalf to bring about healing and restoration. Isn't that incredible? Because there's Mary, pregnant with the Savior Jesus. And it's all Eve can do to to reach out her hand to that Savior and have Mary grab a hold of it and put it to her belly and remind her that the, the sin she clutches and the evil that entangles her feet will not be her story forever. That there is one who is coming to save. And for Adam and Eve, it's not just this far off prediction of help. It's not just love that will come someday. God shows Adam and Eve his love in that very moment too. Listen to this, verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now we remember from the story, Adam and Eve are ashamed of their nakedness and, and God gives them clothes to wear. And listen, even if, that all, even if that is all this is, it's a beautiful example of God being unnecessarily sweet to us. He doesn't have to clothe them. He could have very easily left them in their fig leaves before he banished them from the garden, but it's way more than that. It's way more than that. You see, in Jewish culture, removing someone's clothes signified removing their inheritance. They were stripped of their clothes just like they were stripped of, them, uh, of their place in the family, of their inheritance from the father. By clothing them, by taking the time to put the clothes together and put the clothes on them, God is reinstating Adam and Eve as his children and saying they will share in his inheritance. In Craig Bartholomew's great book called The Drama of Scripture, he says, God's provision of clothes for Adam and Eve is a sign to them that he has not given up on his purpose for them. They are still to bear his image in this world. They are still to inherit the earth. Even on their worst day, God is right there saying, you are still my kids and I still love you. Did you know that Pastors and theologians all the way back to the fourth century have used a Latin term called felix culpa to talk about Adam and Eve's choice to eat the fruit. See, felix culpa means blessed mistake. Blessed mistake. You see, the fall of humanity was, in some ways, a blessed mistake because it showed us so clearly how unconditional and unrelenting the love of God is for us, even on our worst day. Even on our worst day. If you walk away this morning with nothing else, walk away, please, understanding this. The very moment humanity turned their backs on God, he began pursuing us with his unconditional love. The moment 
that we turned our backs on the love of God that we said, I'm going to look for it somewhere else. You are not enough. I don't believe you. I'm not going to choose you. I'm not going to follow you. In that moment, he was enacting a plan for their future redemption and clothing them for their current redemption. Isn't that amazing? The very moment Adam and Eve unleash sin and its consequences on God's perfect world, he sets in motion his plan to come to earth in flesh as Jesus. Live the perfect life we could never live, die in our place, and then overcome death by rising from the grave. On humanity's worst day, God comes after us with his love. I love that Adam and Eve were given such transcendent names by God. You see, Adam means man or humanity, and Eve means life. When you put them together, Adam and Eve literally translates to human life. So regardless of what you believe about a literal or figurative Adam and Eve, they are more than just historical figures, and they are more than just characters in a story. They are the archetype of humanity. They are us. They are human life. And because we all have days like this, times where we turn our backs on the unconditional love of God and we try to get our needs met in selfish and harmful ways, because we all have days like this, because we all share in the humanity of Adam and Eve, we can rest assured that God loves us too. When we do that, when we have our worst days, people get hurt. And I'm not telling you anything that you don't know, right? If you've been on this earth for like 15 minutes, you have been a part of being hurt by someone or hurting yourself or someone else. It's, it's just, it's who humanity is. It's what humanity does. It's our legacy handed down to us from Adam and Eve. But even though it's our legacy, it does not have to be our destiny. Even though it's our legacy, it does not have to be our destiny. Because listen, even when we don't love God, he loves us. Just sit in that for a second. Even when we don't love God, he loves us. Even when we don't trust him. Even when we turn our backs on him, even when we don't choose him, we don't obey him, he never leaves us. The Bible says even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Even when we don't love him, he loves us. This truth is so vividly clear in Paul's letter to the church in Rome in the New Testament. Chapter 5 of Romans, starting in verse 6, it says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were turning our backs on him, Christ died for us. While we were busy still trusting something else, Christ died for us. While we were searching for fulfillment apart from him, Christ died for us. On our very worst day, Jesus died for us. And on your worst day, he would do it again. Just a few verses later, Paul emphasizes this truth. 
by looking back at our story, looking back at Adam and Eve and their worst day. He says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone's sin, but there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. That's the fulfillment of the prediction. That's that picture of Eve and Mary, but Mary's given birth now, and Jesus has lived that life, and he's died that death, and he's risen from the grave like we just sang about. And through him, we all have life. On humanity's very worst day, God came after us with his love. And on your very worst day, he's coming after you too. I love this quote from Bob Goff. He says, God's never looked in your mirror and wished he saw someone else. You are enough. You are loved. You are his. He's never looked at you and wished that he saw someone else. I didn't finish the story earlier about one of my worst days was sitting in the hallway outside of my room crying and I didn't know what else to do, so I called Amy. It was like $4 a minute, but I figured I'd lost 1,500 already, so you know, eight or 12 or 16 more wouldn't be a big deal. So I call her and I'm crying and I'm blubbering and I'm apologizing and I'm saying things like, I get it, if you need to leave, I, I get it, if you can't deal with this, and, and she just was quiet. She just kind of let me talk. And after I got everything out, she started to talk. And I don't really know what I was expecting from her. If, if you know Amy, you know that she's not really the kind of person that berates people, especially when they're down. But I felt so horribly about what I'd done, I, I wouldn't have blamed her if she'd yelled at me. But she didn't. She was gentle and kind and encouraging. She reminded me how much she loved me. She reminded me that her love for me wasn't conditional. She reminded me of Jesus' love for me too. She told me that no matter what the consequences were, no matter how long it took my parents, took me to pay my parents back $1,500, she would be there. She would help. If I'm being really honest with you guys and vulnerable, Sometimes I read about how God showed up and loved Adam and Eve on their worst day. And I think, yeah, maybe that's true, but he's never done that for me. He's never come down on my worst day and put clothes on me, wrapped me up in his arms and said, you're still in my family. You ever feel like that? You ever read a story from the Bible about Jesus just showing up in amazing ways and think, man, I wish I could feel that. Sometimes I think about the way God loved the world so much that he put on flesh and he came to earth as Jesus. How he did these incredible things and loved people in amazing ways and tangible ways, healed them and helped them, especially people that were hurting and on the margins before dying and rising from the grave. And I think, yeah, but I wasn't there for any of that. I didn't get to feel any of that. I didn't get to drink the water that he turned into wine at the party. 
I didn't get to see him touch the, the guy with leprosy and, and, and watch the, the disease fall off him. I didn't get to see him rub dirt on the blind guy's eyes. I didn't get to share any meals with him. Maybe I get to share in his love someday in heaven, but right now I don't really get to feel it. I don't know if you ever feel like that, but I feel like that a lot. But then when I do, God reminds me of the way Amy loved me over the phone that night on the cruise. He reminds me of the way my parents have loved me, even when I cost them $1,500. He reminds me how quickly my boys forgive me when I screw up and jump into my lap and give me a hug. He reminds me about how so many of you have walked through some really difficult things with me and with my family, and how you keep showing up, how you keep loving me, even when I am so far from perfect. Here's my point. I really do believe that God loves you on your very worst day, and I believe that the way he often shows us that love is through each other. This is what it means when scripture says that we are the hands and feet of Jesus. See, when God wants to give us a shoulder to cry on, he, he brings his children together and they share shoulders. When he wants to provide a meal to someone who's struggling or who's just had a baby or who's walking through a hard time, he cooks it in the families, in the, in the kitchens of our church family. When he wants to wrap us in a hug, he uses the arms of his people. So if you're here this morning and you need a little bit of that love, you've had a hard week or a hard month or a hard year or a hard few years, we want to give you the chance to experience it right here, right now, this morning. So me and some other leaders from Restore are going to be right there, that big sign that says prayer, right after this. And we would just love to give you a hug. We would love to pray with you. We would love to talk with you. We'd love to be an, an ear to listen or a shoulder to cry on, whatever you need. And as we're over there, the band's gonna come back up and lead us in one of my favorite songs called Always Have. And here's what the chorus says. It says, you love me, you always have. You choose me just as I am. You love me, you always have. So whether it's standing and singing this song, whether it's sitting in your chair and reflecting, or whether it's coming over to the prayer area for a shoulder and a hug, my hope for you is that right now, in this moment, you experience a glimpse of the incredible love God has for you. Because listen to me, listen to me. Even in your lowest moment, he chooses you. Even on your worst day, there is nothing you can do to make him stop loving you. Do you stand with me? I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna soak in the great love of God together. Jesus, thank you for the way that you love us. 
Thank you for the way that you loved Eve and Adam on their worst day. Thank you for the way that you loved David on his worst day. Paul on his worst day. Ruth and Naomi on their worst days. Thank you that love is not just something that you do, it's, it's who you are. Thank you that your love is unrelenting. Thank you that it's unwavering. And thank you that even on our worst day, oh blessed mistake, we got to find out just how serious you were when you said, I'll love you forever. I pray for each and every person here, watching online, listening to this later on. God, I pray that right now, in this moment, they would feel that love from you. Whether it's just in their heart, through your spirit, God, or it's through the handshake or hug or prayer of one of your kids. Help us feel your love.